Good morning. We're going to be talking this morning about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting around verse 17. And when we look at that, it's talking about what many people refer to as communion, or Passover meal, or the Last Supper, or the Lord's Supper, or an agape meal, or the Blessed Sacrament, or Mass. It has many different names, which shows how many different ways we look at this situation. So verse 28 says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. And that sounds like sort of a warning type statement. In fact, uh, Paul is definitely has a fairly harsh tone when he's addressing the church at Corinthians. Because his first statement is in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he basically says, your meetings do more harm than good. Now, that's a great way to endure yourself to a local congregation is to tell them that their gathering together is actually doing more harm than good. But what is Paul getting at? Well, I think he's getting at they've lost the celebrating of the extraordinary grace of Christ just by continuing doing things in the ordinary way of life. In a book that uh, is called What If Jesus Was Serious by Sky Jahante, he has some very insightful statements that he makes. And this verse that I just read, he describes as growing up in the church as that's sort of like going out after a storm. And there's down power lines and there's danger, you know, and just got to be really careful. But he has a really insightful thing that he points out that really, this statement is not so much about us individually, but as us corporately. And this is what he says. Paul's primary concern with the Lord's table was unity, not purity. Rather than gathering at the table as a sign of their oneness in Christ, the Corinthians were using the table to reinforce social divisions, particularly the divide in their culture between rich and poor. In the first century, the wealthy did not share a table with the poor. Jews did not eat with Greeks. Slaves did not break bread with the free. The Corinthians had uncritically carried these attitudes into the church and into their practice of the Lord's Supper. And this is why Paul was so, so upset. Through their disunity, they are betraying the meaning of the meal, and they were mocking the sacrifice of Christ, which had made them one family. I thought that was a really insightful statement to point out that when we're gathering at the Lord's table, and whether we do that as a shared meal or whether we do that uh, once a month uh, during a worship service or once a year, like at a Passover meal, the point is it's really not about us. It's not about how well we're doing. It's about that extraordinary grace of Christ. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, we talked a little bit about that a couple weeks ago. Moses is now telling the people of Israel as they're getting ready to go into the promised land to remember things. And he talks about the commands and the instructions and how if they fear the Lord, they'll enjoy a long life and things will go well with them. They'll increase greatly. And so that sort of sounds like a materialistic thing, but I think Proverbs 9 Verse 11 makes it very clear it's talking about a spiritual thing, 
Because in Proverbs, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 tells us this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus, when he's asked about what is the greatest commandment, his words are recorded in Matthew 22, very similar. He says, the first and the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Then he goes on to say, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, and that all the law and the prophets hang on those two commandments. So remembering things is very important. In fact, in Luke 22, 19 through 20, Jesus himself at the Passover meal says this, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But as Sky Jahante says in his book and points out, and I, I think 1 Corinthians 10, 16 backs it up, the Lord's table, communion, the Eucharist, whatever we want to call it, is a lot more than just remembering. And Verse 16 of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying this. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of the Christ? And then he goes on to talk about the unity of one loaf and one body. So as we look at that, Paul is not talking about just remembering things in the past but how that is active in, in the present. And again, Sky Jahante says this, the ancient Jewish understanding of remembrance was very different from ours. Theologian Paul Bradshaw puts it this way, in the Jewish world, remembrance was not purely a mental activity. It was not simply about nostalgia for the past, but about asking God to remember his people and complete his saving purpose today. So again, when we're looking at celebrating that extraordinary grace of Christ. We're looking at doing that as the onworking, that ongoing work of the grace of Christ that's taking place in all of our lives. Jahante then goes on and says this, the Passover was a symbol of how God saved his people from slavery in the past. But Jesus appealed to that power and applied it to the present circumstance. He used the unleavened bread from the Passover meal and gave it a contemporary meeting. This is my body broken for you. And the same with the wine. This is the new covenant in my blood. The meal was not just about remembering what God had done in the past. Jesus was inviting that saving power into the present. And as we keep that in mind, I think that's how we remember to celebrate that extraordinary grace in our ordinary lives. So that Christ's love deepen and that our love for others becomes more authentic. Unfortunately, we as humans are often so emotional in how we evaluate things. When we talk about the music part of the worship service, you know, we'll have great praise for the worship service as long as we're experiencing some special feeling. Or a sermon, if that excites us and gives us that special feeling, then we, we think that sermon has hit the mark. But really, Christ is present in just the ordinary things. And as I thought about how to explain that to uh, I thought of an old movie, 1984, The Karate Kid. 
Now, what does that have to do with the Lord's table? Hopefully I can make the connection. Because Mr. Miyagi, he just made the movie. He was like the father everybody wanted to have. Daniel LaRusso was a young boy who was being bullied. And he has a <clears throat> chance meeting with Mr. Miyagi, and he discovers that he knows karate. And so, of course, to protect himself, he wants to learn karate. And one of the statements early on Mr. Miyagi gives him is that you have to learn balance. Good balance, good karate, good everything. And then he has him do all these ordinary, mundane things. You remember the car scene, wax on, wax off, wax on. And he's, Daniel's just frustrated. He wants to have that mountaintop experience. He wants to become, you know, that excellent, <clears throat> invincible karate person. And his self-doubts are just constantly there, and he just wants to quit all the time. But Mr. Miyagi always calls him back and points out to him, it's in the ordinary things in life that we can experience the extraordinary. And I think that's true of God's grace. In a newsletter that Manny Garcia, our superintendent, put out last year in May of 2022, he quotes from Tish Wells, The Liturgy of the Ordinary was the name of her book. And this is what uh, Manny Garcia writes in this newsletter. What if, as Wells contends, the small, seemingly insignificant moments of my day were to actually form me into the deepest ways? What if, as Eugene Peterson notes in Romans 12:1, my everyday, ordinary life, my sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life is the laboratory where we're truly shaped? If this is true, then there's, it's not so much about my church attendance or Bible reading, all those things certainly play a role. Instead, it's the way I live and love and respond moment by moment to the experiences that make me who I am. Wells says today is the proving ground of what I believe and what I worship. But we tend to want to be on the mountaintop. Well, Diane and I just got back from a trip to Colorado. We managed to go up a 14,000 mountain, foot mountain. That's actually 14,265 feet, Mount Evans. We actually drove most of the way up and just walked the last 160 feet. But anyway, the brochure that tells you about how to get there has this nice warning in there. You know, once you get to the top, there's these awesome views. But they point this out. Shortness of breath, mild headaches, fatigue, dizziness, loss of appetite, and nausea are common side effects for people climbing higher than 10,000 feet. And it points out also the sun is 5% stronger for every 1,000 feet of elevation you go up. And the weather is typically cold, with a daytime summer temperature averaging around 42 degrees. And with the wind, it makes it feel much colder. So they advised you to wear a jacket, which we did. So the view is breathtaking. But the bottom line, unless you're a mountain goat, and we saw several of them up there, you can't live on the mountaintop. It's not designed for that. You need to live in the valley. That's where the life is. That's where you meet people. That's where the grief, that's where the sorrow is. But that's also where the joy and friendship and community is. So living in the ordinary while appreciating the extraordinary grace of Christ is the challenge. Again, quoting from Sky Jahante's book, he says this, quoting from Henry Nguyen, the word Eucharist, Eucharist means literally an act of thanksgiving. To celebrate the Eucharist and to live a Eucharist life 
has everything to do with gratitude. Living Eucharistically is to live life as a gift, a gift for which one is grateful. But gratitude is not the most obvious response to life, certainly not when we're experiencing life as a series of losses. Still, the great mystery we celebrate in the Eucharist and live in the Eucharist life is precisely that through the morning, our losses come to know life as a gift, that gratitude of that extraordinary grace of Christ is an invitation to us all. And again, from his book, the final quote I'm going to share with you, he says this, our acceptability has always been conditional, and every human soul carries the wounds of rejection from not meeting someone's standards, and how terrible when that wound is inflicted by a parent, a spouse, a community, or even a church. Rejection always leaves a wound, not a visible one, but a cut in our souls whose scars we may carry for the remainder of our lives. But it's at Christ's table we gather to remember his wounds and that we discover our wounds as welcome as well. It's an ongoing celebration of that extraordinary grace of Christ where there's room, room for all of us that are wounded so that we can embrace his love and share his love in an authentic way. If you'll join me in prayer. Father, we do thank you for that extraordinary grace that we celebrate at your table. Help us to do that with gratitude and not take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen.